0: Thank <laughs> you. Welcome back to the Bulwark. Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at the Bulwark, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Julian Schlossberg, uh, who has a new book out, "Try Not to Hold It Against Me: A Producer's Life," um, which is uh, it's a super interesting look at really every facet of the entertainment industry. You know, Julian has a, has had a really uh, fascinating life, um, uh, and I, I want to talk to him a bit uh, getting started here about his work uh, in live theater uh, and Broadway and Off Broadway, and kind of what some of the differences there are. Um, uh, thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. And I, yes, it is true. I've had a varied or checkered career, as they say.
0: <laughs> well, it's it is it's fascinating. Again, I, I, I want to get to I want to get to live theater here in a second. And I, I, the way I was going to describe your career, uh, and then didn't really want to, because I wasn't sure how you would take it, was. Um, all over the place uh, because, and, and I mean that—I mean that in the nicest way possible. Because you—you you are in, you're in TV, you're in movies, you're in live theater. Here, you have a little line about the music industry that I'll, I'll talk about in a sec. Uh, But you—you you have a—you have a wide and varied background here, which I think is is wonderful for listeners of this show. I think there's a lot they're going to learn um, from yes, from thank listening you.
1: to you. Yes, it is. You know, I—I I really thought at the beginning, I don't have a law degree, I don't have a medical degree, I don't have a dental degree. I have a college degree, but that's not really enough for the entertainment business, that's for sure. So I thought the best thing to do was to learn everything I could to study and learn all aspects of the entertainment business. I didn't do that with the idea that I go into all of the aspects of the entertainment business, but I ended up doing that, because I thought knowledge is power. And if you really learn a lot about your craft or what you're trying to do, perhaps it will pay off. And I think in a way it did. But, you know, as we both know, Sonny, you got to work hard if you're going to make it in any business, but certainly the entertainment business.
0: Yeah, that's that's for sure. So let's let's talk about theater. There's a line in your uh, book that goes like this uh, quote. There's a famous saying about producing in theater. You can't make a living, but you can make a killing. It's true. It's like wildcatting for oil. When you hit one, it's a gusher, but you don't hit often. End quote. Um, and I, 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 really find this interesting because again, I don't know much about the the financial uh, aspects of live theaters, particularly Broadway and and the money there. I know the very basics that if you have a if you have a big hit musical, something like The Lion King, you can make a billion dollars. Uh, and and otherwise, it's it's almost hard to get out without losing your shirt um what could you all right so f- from your perspective as a longtime producer uh on broadway on off broadway uh even off off broadway i think you've done some shows I, what how does that how how does the financing and uh money-making uh, aspect of theater work
1: well it's a question that could probably could go on for hours about <laughs> it and as you know sonny you see when you watch a film or you go to the theater, you see 18 or 22 producers, what the hell, you know, you need one good producer, Uh, Mm -hmm. maybe two, you know, if it's a musical, you need a couple. Because it's a it's an arduous job. I mean, you have to look for the property, you have to find the director, you want to work with the writer and the director, you have to cast and then you have to get involved yourself really with the advertising, the marketing, the publicity. Uh, And on top of it, the hardest part for me is the what I call the tin cup that is going around raising the money, which is clearly from my point of view, something I cannot, I can't stand doing it. I'm able to do it, but I'm never happy doing it. Now, back to your question, which I remember when I was much younger, and that was about the financing. Well, you you hire a a general manager uh, who makes a budget for you, and he budgeted based on the, the script that he has been given. Of course, as we both know, that script can change, but at least you start out with a blueprint, and that blueprint says, okay, you have to raise X amount of money. Then the job is to try to find the way to do that. And at the same time, hope that you can get a theater. And if you can get, uh, you have to try to also be able to find that director that you need, because unless you're going to direct it yourself, and very few producers direct. Hal Prince was one who could do both. But most of the time, uh, you can't. You go out and you raise the money. And if you're doing a musical, you have to ha- sign stars for a year. That's really hard in today's market. And the reason you have to is that musicals on Broadway cost between and I'm just talking average 14 to 15 million dollars. Now, think about that. If you're making let's say uh 300,000 profit a week, which is a lot of money, you're not you're just about going to break even if you can do that. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep those people for a year. And if you can do that, then you have a shot at least of coming out. What also helps in theater is the touring. Again, a musical. Musicals tour, straight plays rarely do. It's very sad because when I started, we could send out a, a road company of a straight play. And certainly Neil Simon's always could cause his was such huge hits, but by and large, you cannot. So yes, to answer your question, I'm trying to do it, is the fact that you go out, you raise the money, and, and you hope that you're gonna get an audience. And it's not an easy thing to get an audience in today's world, because the, the public is, has everything coming at them. Everything, everything to try to get people to come in. I remember a great song in Midnight Cowboy called Everybody's Talking. I wanna call the world we're living in, everybody's hawking. Everybody's hawking right now. That's what everyone seems to be doing. When I did this book, I th- I was told by the publisher, please make a trailer. I said, a trailer? <laughs> For the book? They said, oh, yeah. I said, well, yeah. send me a couple. And they sent me Michelle Obama's trailer. I thought, well, if Michelle Obama's making a trailer, that's the least I can do. Anyhow, I hope it answers a little bit of,
0: of yeah. the question. Well, it's it's uh, just a just to drill down slightly deeper into the nuts and bolts. Um, there, you sure. know, you talk you talk in the in the book about selling shares to a play, which is like it, it, it's a it's it's kind of a fascinating, um, almost, uh, you know, w- when people talk about getting a movie made, you know, they're like, okay, we're gonna get twenty million dollars from Paramount, we're gonna get you know fifteen million dollars from United Artists, we're gonna put all that together. But when when you're making a play, I mean, you're actually going to people and saying, hey, will you put $25,000 into this. We put $100,000 into this. I mean, how how does that process work uh, just in terms of getting the money and then paying it? Like, how do you pay it out? I, I'm when well, when the money comes pay, in, you
1: pay, it, you pay it out on the basis of profits. Nobody nobody gets any money uh, from the from the, uh, uh, the production except the, the talented people, the people who put the uh, you know the, the director, the writer, the actors. Mm-hmm. But after that, nobody shares. Until the investors get their money back, so that I I get a very small fee, until the money gets back. Once the money comes back, if that ever happens, and it's rare, as I said, it's like striking for a And When it does, the producer then has fifty percent of the profits, and the investors have the other fifty percent. But you don't take your money until the investors have their money out. So that's a that's the good part of being an investor at least you know that if it ever hits you know you're going to get you're going to get your money first and that's that's an important that's an important aspect people who invest in theater do it for very various reasons one is of course the excitement of going to the opening night party maybe coming to rehearsals going to advertising meetings and seeing how it happens others may be if it's a musical, maybe to meet a chorus girl or two still in today's world. But by and large, people invest because they love theater. They know that going in, this is not for them. You know, this is not going to be they I've always said the same thing, Sonny, to anybody who's come to me to invest. I say, all I want to know is can you afford to lose the money? Because if you can't, I don't want the money. And now, Many producers wouldn't do that, <laughs> and that ha- that could be Jewish guilt for all I know. But whatever the reason, I can't I can't take money if someone's going to say no. I do remember being visited once by an extraordinarily wealthy man who walked into my office, and it's terrible to say, but somehow you can meet someone and not like them before they open their mouth. He sure. swaggered in, and he was so damn sure of himself and he says look i want to know the first thing how much money can i make i said i want to tell you the first thing you can lose everything (laughs) that changed his tune (laughs) he said then why am i here i said i have no idea (laughs) and he left and that was yeah yeah no money can i make you can make as you said earlier you can hit i mean if you have uh the lion king if you have the book of mormon if you have wicked you can go on and on and not just in new york but the world, and then they make a movie out of it, on top of it. No, it's it. when you hit, you really hit. Uh, but very few people do. And yeah. I can't <laughs> say I ever did. I never yeah. did. Yeah,
0: well, when you mentioned the difference between touring for musicals versus straight plays, is it just a function of it's hard to assemble the talent uh, that you need to to do a local production of a giant musical like that. So people want to see want to see the touring company versus say you know I you know the 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 DC Shakespeare Theater can put on an Othello or a Hamlet um, just as well as you know maybe it's not Patrick Stewart in the in the lead role of of Macbeth or whatever, but you know it's it's a uh, it's, it's, still, it's still a pretty good show. But for a musical, you really need like a very specific group of people. You need big sets that travel. I mean, is, is, is it mostly that?
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the big thing about musicals are that's what the public wants to see when you go mm-hmm. out. If they felt that they wanted to see straight plays, that's what would be going out. But if you look at a season of any regional theater in this country, a uh, major one, they'll all be musicals. There, there will be almost no straight plays. Uh, on the other hand, <clears throat> that's where money can be made. Many movie, many plays lose money domestically and then make it back on the tour. Many years ago, I did. Uh, I was a, an associate producer uh, on *Damn Yankees* with a wonderful cast, Victor Garber and Bebe Newworth. But then Jerry Lewis came in, and Jerry Lewis played the devil in *Damn Yankees*. And when we took. Jerry Lewis on the road, it made a lot of money. Didn't pay, didn't make any money in, in New York because, you know, in New York, you're playing against 50, 60 theaters. You know, on the road, maybe there's four or five. I ask you in Dallas, for example, it's probably a handful, that's all. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, so the competition is unbelievable in New York, but when you get on the road, if you have a title that the public knows, they're going to come see it. Yes.
0: I will say from personal experience, uh, after taking my family to see the touring version of Frozen, uh, that that sounds that sounds uh, exactly right. Just a packed, packed uh, audience waiting, waiting to see that. Um,
1: uh, uh, All right. No, go ahead. uh,
0: Oh, I was I was gonna I was I was uh, I, I just want to one more one more question about the theater. Uh, what I, I, I again, what I what I found really interesting reading was putting together um, some of these one act plays. I mean, you talk about getting a getting a uh, a series that I think it was David Mamet, um, uh, Woody May. Allen, and Elaine May. Um, which is uh, which is just a, like a, a, like an absolute killer. It's the sort of thing that you you hear, or I hear you know as a critic and as a, a lover of movies. I'm like that sounds amazing, but apparently it's still it's still hard to it's hard to get folks to show up even for that, right?
1: Well, that was actually one of my biggest hits. Okay, okay. <laughs> so here we go. I'm glad we brought that one up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was because of you know David Mamet, Elaine May, and and Woody Allen uh, doing comedies. And we had Linda Lavin. We had Debbie Monk. We had a great director, Michael Blakemore. And uh, we played for over a year. In fact, we did so well off-Broadway. We broke every record in the history of off-Broadway at that time. And when Linda left, Linda had a six-month contract. I was able to get Valerie Harper to come in, and we played another six months. So it was uh, it was a wonderful experience. And it, it, I, I, I had a real problem, Sonny, in as much as I had two plays that opened simultaneously off-Broadway, both breaking the house records and then both breaking the history of Off-Broadway. Now why would that be a problem? Because I thought, hey, I've spent my life in the movie business, I should have been doing theater, I know what I'm doing, I'm a New Yorker, I'll I'll do great that's the worst thing you can think of I went one flop two flops three flops right in a row after that and learned that you know you just had beginner's luck buddy you just had beginner's luck <laughs> it's tough it's tough I
0: I'm, I'm going to uh, ask a question I know the answer to now but I did not before I read your book and it's gonna it's gonna sound like a dumb question but I, I think people will will uh, be interested to know it if if maybe not maybe I'm maybe I'm just dumb Uh I always thought off Broadway meant location off off Broadway meant location. I did not realize that it was an actual it's it's more about the number of seats. Right. Could you could you explain what that distinction is to folks? What the difference between
1: I can try. I have League of Theater people I hope are not listening because they'll say, what is he talking about? But as far as I know, from approximately 40th Street to 59th Street is the Broadway area, and that is not determined by seats but that's truly by location you know mm-hmm. on the other hand there are theaters in the 40s for example that are not on the in broadway and 6th and 8th avenue they'll be 9th or 10th and that is by seats so that 9 the reason that you'll see 99 seats 199 299 399 etc is that once you go to the next seat you pay much more money t- to the unions or to the non-unions or to whoever you're dealing with. So yes, it's both things. Uh, off Broadway is determined by uh, the, the uh, amount of seats, but location also matters a great deal. Mm-hmm.
0: And and so it is. It's a function also of union contracts. Then, if you were if it's a Broadway show, you have to pay more. If it's an off Broadway
1: show, less. No off, question. But but as you also said, seats are important too, because yeah. it's hard to say to a even a union guy, look, I, I only have a thousand seats. They're going to say, I, I don't feel sorry for you, buddy. <laughs> You're taking, you have an eight thousand potential a week of seats yeah. being sold. But if you say I have one hundred ninety nine, yes, it's it's much yeah. better that way. Okay. Okay.
0: All right. Good. I I just I wanted to kind of explain that for folks, because, again, something I didn't quite understand until reading this. I think I think folks uh, I hope would like to know. I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, So let's let's uh, skip way back uh, to to near the start of your career, because another thing I found really interesting reading, uh, reading this book was when you were discussing um, booking. Uh, The theaters, uh, booking the movie theaters in in New York City, booking uh, the Walter Reed theaters and trying to trying to get uh, those those set up. Um, And one thing in particular that jumped out at me uh, was. The 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 importance of matching theaters and audiences and advertising campaigns and audiences. And this sounds I mean, this is such an obvious thing. It's such you know you you don't want it you don't want to tell folks uh, that they're gonna be seeing something that they're not seeing, and you want to bring movies to neighborhoods that uh, that that are looking for that sort of thing. can you uh, can you tell the story for folks about uh, why Elaine May was so mad at you? uh when the uh when her when her movie was being previewed in dc and why it it kind of died on the on the vine
1: yeah it was well i had never met elaine and uh and she was uh told to call forgive the name dropping but she was told to call me by warren Beatty, who had been a friend of mine and i was told elaine said i understand you're okay for a studio executive Meaning, I guess, (laughs) many of the studio executives were not okay, or at least that's how it was put. Well, she said, I told her that there was going to be a sneak preview of her film, Mikey and Nicky. And she said, look, don't put my name in the ad. If you do, they're going to think it's a comedy. Just Peter Peter Falk, John Cassavetes, Ned Beatty, that's it. And uh, a new movie. Don't say, I'm in it. I said, fine. And I went to the advertising meeting and the president of the company said, um, oh, we're going to put her name in. I said, no, 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 she's very specific. She does not want her name in. No, no, we got to put her name in. I said, no, no, I've told her that. Anyhow, I was overridden, as they say, and her name went in. So at the end of the sneak preview, because people had expected a comedy and it's got some great laughs in it, but it's a gritty, tough comedy realistic movie based on uh, a, a true story her family was somewhat involved with the mob as she grew up and it's based on that story so at the end people are booing and walking out and i i'm taken into the manager's office where elaine is there and she says you know what a liar is <laughs> and i said well, what do you, what do you mean she said you said my name wouldn't be in the ad, and the aim was there, and they're booing. Listen to that noise out there. They're still booing. <laughs> and the president, I give him this. He said, I overruled him. I, and as, as Elaine wrote in her foreword to the book, because she's become my closest friend, she wrote in the book, uh, "He, she was overruled by a man in charge of vice presidents. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I may just finish quickly. Yes, yes. We, we, um, I was really upset because I had a great love for her talent and a great admiration for her as, as a human being. And I went to her and I said, look, let's go out to all the theaters that are, should be frost plugging the movie and make sure they're doing it. And she said, okay. And uh, as she writes in the book, He made me take buses because he said paramount wasn't knowing that i was going to be doing this and i couldn't charge them (laughs) anyhow we went to the theaters to find out that the trailers weren't on the screen i made sure they were on the screen and i took over the movie and eventually uh peter fork elaine and i got the movie back from paramount and i've been distributing it ever since and and i've represented elaine and i've produced every one of her plays since uh and we became very close friends. So it was a terrible beginning. I was one of the most depressed people in the city uh, until I was able to make it up to her.
0: Yeah, it does have a happy ending. Uh, again, you you have you have done uh, work with her ever since, and it, thank thank goodness. For that, I, I want to leap uh, back just just a hair to talk about the Warren Beatty story, because this is another one that's very interesting to me. You know, I, everybody kind of knows the story uh, about of Bonnie and Clyde. Right. Bonnie and Clyde comes out. It dies initially. Pauline Cale champions it. it. it shows up back in theaters. It's a huge hit, huge zeitgeist changing film for um, really uh, all of Hollywood. I did not realize that there was a similar story with McCabe and Miss Miller.
1: Yes, it was. I uh, I had at that time representing the Walter Reed Theaters in New York, um, the Coronet Theater was the prime theater in the New York City, as was Cinema One. They were the two best theaters on the east side and every distributor wanted them. And the reason they wanted them was that in those days, Sonny, people opened one theater in New York City that set, not the city, not not the country, the world. How that film did in New York really often determined the rest of the history. And many times those pictures would play, believe it or not, downtown Manhattan for a year before it would even go into the neighborhoods. So this idea of 1,500, 2,000 prints, it didn't happen. Warren opens McCabe and Mrs. Miller. with He starred and produced it with Bob Altman directing and Julie Christie co-starring. And he opens in the Lowe's State on Broadway in the Lowe's Ciné on the 86th Street. And it's it's, it's a disaster. People don't come and it's pulled in two weeks. It's gone. And I get a call from a man I never knew, except from afar, Warren Beatty, at that point. And he says, have you ever seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller? I said, no. He said, I really would like you to screen it and I want your opinion. Now, as naive as I was, I knew he didn't just want my opinion, but I had no idea what he did want. And anyhow, we, uh, I screened the movie. I thought it was a terrific film. And then he surprised me with, I want you to open it at the Coronet. I, I, it was madness. I mean, the film just died. He's asking for the best theater in the, in the city, if not the second best. I said, I, I, I don't know. He, and he just never stopped. He, he cajoled. He pushed. He said, look, we're both young. That's how long ago it was. We <laughs> were both young and we're coming up in the business. You saw what I did on Bonnie and Clyde. I'll get you advertising. I'll go on the air. I'll do it. Just do it. Open it. And damn it, he convinced me. He, he pushed me. He could, as I say, he did everything. And we opened it. And it was a big success in New York City. I don't know how it did around the country. It certainly wasn't in Bonnie and Clyde territory, Mm -hmm. but it was successful and it's considered one of Altman's best films, which I think it is.
0: Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I, like it's in the criterion collection now. It is a, it is a much beloved uh, I I think uh, certainly in Altman's canon and also um, Beatty's the, 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 the business of opening movies in New York is very fascinating to me because, again, as you say, you know, something opens on one one screen, uh, plays there for a long time. It is so different than now. But there, there was also real competition between the theaters themselves for the movies, right? I mean, oh did God. you what was it, what was it, what was it like to like? What did you have to go to uh, to studios and say, hey, we'll give you this? Uh, for this amount of time? I mean, how, do, how did those negotiations work?
1: Well, it, it's a very good question, but it's the tough answer. And not because I'm going to hold back, because as you can see, I'll babble <laughs> away. But, but I, what I would have to say was that it would so depend on the movie you'd be talking about. You see, for example, let's take a movie like The Great White Hope. The Great White Hope James Earl Jones an incredible movie and and but where do you play it in New York well you can play it on Broadway because it's a rough crowd and they'll go for a boxing film etc you can play it on the east side because it's a well-made intelligent beautifully acted movie so you play what they call day and date that's what you do my biggest competition was Cinema 5 Don Rugoff's theaters but he had no Broadway theater so right off the bat I had four I had the Asta, the Victoria, the DeMille, and then the Ziegfeld. So I had the ability to take a movie like Great White Hope where he couldn't. He couldn't play it both places. So that helped me. That was a big edge for me. You try to place, you try to go after the movies you liked. Often you could screen them but sometimes you couldn't, and then you'd read a script and take your chances. And I, I had, I've had some great successes, but I had some unbelievable failures. And while no one wants to talk about failures, I don't mind. I mean, <laughs> after all, it was back during the Civil War, number one. <laughs> and, and secondly, uh, I had successes, so why not? <clears throat> I put in Harold and Maude. Okay, Harold and Maud, which has become one of the great classic movies. At the Coronet Theater at Christmas, which means that, Sonny, if you and I did an interview at the (laughs) Coronet Theater, we could do business. That's how I'm telling you anything could go in. at Two weeks, Harold and Moore died. Died. And it died around the country until a guy in St. Louis played it. 30 weeks, 40 weeks, and then somebody had taken Boston. And all of a sudden, this film that had been a total disaster became this giant success. So at least I could say, hey, I saw it. Why didn't you, you know? <laughs> Another film was Where's Papa? Where's Papa was a wild movie, crazy film, George Siegel and Trish Vanderveer and Ruth Gordon and directed by uh, oh, come on, Julian, you can do it. Directed by, well, I'm sorry, the director, Carl Reiner. Carl Reiner. Okay. There we go. And the same thing. It it, it went in the Coronet, played a couple of weeks, was taken out, but became a cult film. So the answer to your question, I think I'm trying to, it it would often depend on the movie, how much you liked it or the script, and also the availability of your theaters. You know, I was playing Midnight Cowboy for a year at the Coronet, so I, I couldn't give the Coronet away if I wanted to without pulling a movie, which I didn't want to do. So it would be who, what theaters, and, and also producers and directors had favorite theaters. They would say, oh, I don't want this. I want the Sutton Theater or I want the Fine Arts Theater. And then you'd have to, if, if, if you had that theater, you'd try to find a way for them to get it. There were so many different uh, permutations and variations that it would be inho- impossible to say how it was done, except that you hoped that you had enough contacts that they wanted your theaters. And the other thing I tried to do was to say, because you see, Walter Reed had a chain. It wasn't just New York. And we, we were in we were in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. We were in Los Angeles, Dayton, Chicago. So we were all over the country, Atlanta, uh, Washington, DC, had the town and the Capitol Hill, uh, two theaters you know about. Uh, and so often I would try to say, well, look, I need a picture at the Capitol Hill. If you want this, you got to help me. Well, I'm not sure we can do that. I said, well, I'm not sure I can do it, and somehow either it happened or it didn't, so it yeah. was it was a lot of uh, jiving and uh, handling and going around and, and trying to make deals, but I really did love it. I think it was one of my happiest times. I was only 27 years old when I had this job, so I was called by Variety the youngest film buyer in the history of a theater chain. So it was an exciting time and the great thing is people used to say to me it never went to your head. How come? I said because it was the theaters. They didn't want me. They didn't care who the hell was booking. They wanted the theater. I never confused yeah. it. Never got confused by it.
0: Yeah. It's a I again it's it's a really interesting uh, look at the business. Uh, if, you, if you're fascinated by uh, again any aspect of the film industry or uh, the entertainment industry, TV, radio. We haven't even talked about your radio show yet. You know, I have I I do a one hour show once a week on the business of Hollywood. You were doing four hours. Uh, four uh, hours on a uh, yeah. I mean, I that's you know, and it's nationally syndicated. It's great stuff.
1: Excuse me. I had the advantage that you didn't have. It was a calling show as well. Yeah, yeah so that's, true. that's true. That, that, that gave me a time to rest and breathe while they went on and on.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's always that's always nice. Uh, again, the name of the book is "Try Not to Hold It Against Me: A Producer's Life." Uh, make sure make sure you pick it up. Um, the uh, I, I, there are so many things I, I want to ask you. I, uh, uh, here's just a very basic one. I mean, you were. Uh, you, you you write about your friendship with George C Scott who is one of the you know I mean one of the great actors of all time one of my favorite actors um, I love Patton and I love uh, dr Strangelove and everything else and there's there's an interesting moment in your book where you you asked him um, what his his favorite mm-hmm. role was and I was surprised by the answer because I had always heard that this Particular picture that you'll you'll tell us here in a sec was uh was one of his least favorite acting experiences.
1: It's, yeah, you know. it was very surprising to me. I, I was sure I knew the answer, Sonny. The answer was going to be Patton, of course. I mean he he won the even though he said, "I don't nominate me, I'm not going to do it. Don't let me win, I'm not going to take it." And he didn't take it. So, but he loved working with Shaffner, and they even did Islands in the Stream after that. You know, uh, he loved working with Shaffner, and so. I was sure he'd say Patton. And when he said Dr. Strangelove, I was really surprised. But I think as I thought about it, he really didn't have any comic ability in movies. He did on stage, but he hadn't had any success. And he loved comedy. He really enjoyed doing comedy. And so I think that was part of it. Um, I, I, I remember him telling me that he said to Kubrick, you know, I'm going a little bit over the top here. I don't really want to do that. And Kubrick said, well, do one take that way. You know, the usual, <laughs> how the actor gets sucked in. They do six more takes, but the director knew what he wanted. He wanted that one take with over the top. So George, at that point, I don't think was that thrilled about that particular moment. But as he, I guess as the, the picture became so big, and I think comedy, because he was brilliant in Plaza Suite. I mean he was just great on stage in Plaza Suite and I think he loved comedy. He also directed comedies. I remember him directing a noel coward piece uh, uh on Broadway. So I think that's probably why everyone knew he was a great dramatic actor, but I don't think they knew how good he was in comedy. Yeah. Yeah, uh he really is uh again
0: it's it's wonderful. You know, it's 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 always interesting to hear uh, people talk about when they were wrong and I don't I don't want to I don't want to pick on on but I this was a this was a A, a really interesting little kind of revelatory moment um, where you're talking about Saturday Night Fever um, and uh, You know, you 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 went to listen to the soundtrack and you were like eh, I don't think no, this I, is loved, what,
1: I love the soundtrack, but right, but I thought but that's the music I grew up with. That's early rock and roll to me, the BJs. That's not that's not today's music. It's not the the uh, guy, whatever those groups are, that the Grateful Dead or something like that. That's the music of today when in the seventies. But uh, I was thrilled. I mean, because the, the head of the studio said, "What do you think?" I said, "I love the music." He said, "Oh, great." I said, "No, wait a second. I don't think it's today's music." But uh, of course, I was happy that it was the number one best-selling album by the Bee Gees. And uh, my, I was in charge of that movie ostensibly for Paramount. I was the man in charge. I had about much to do with that success as you did. But I did do one thing. I went to John Batham after a couple of scenes and I said, John, we've got to get this film on television. You've got to give me some coverage with this language. This language is really the streets. We got to have some coverage, which meant that instead of saying really X rated words, you just said regular words like stinking. (laughs) Crap. (laughs) You could get away with that. Of course, there was no at that time, no pay TV, no basic cable. There was just free TV and they were they were and still are under very strict FCC rules about language. You'd think by now they'd let it go because everyone's. (laughs) watching whatever they want on free, I mean, on on streaming or free TV or, I mean, not free TV or basic cable. So every once in a while, 81 years shows up in my brain. Well, it, it it's interesting you the your your whole
0: um the whole section on uh on paramount and and kind of your, your 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 work with the studio is is interesting because it is it's the most it's clearly the section of the book where you feel the most frustrated by what's happening um yeah. it you know it, it t- talk a little bit about the your your uh, annoyance at the inability to get things done, which again was, was very different there than in theater or, you know, your radio show or, or, or elsewhere.
1: Well, you see, I, as I had mentioned earlier, I was coming from Walter Reed, where I had a fair amount of power and I was the person who made the final decisions. When I went to, uh, even though I was a vice president, and even though <laughs> I was told you're the third highest paid person in the studio, I couldn't say yes, I was, I had, all I could say was no, and I'll get back to you. (laughs) Those were my two things. So I was terribly frustrated because I wanted the ability to green light, as I said, just one movie. Don't, I don't have to have uh, more than that. Just give me one movie that's mine that I can do. and, And I was refused. So that was extremely frustrating. And I went in, to a man I respected greatly, Barry Diller. And I said, Barry, I want to resign. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, uh, well, I'm, I'm diametrically opposed to everything you're doing here. And he said, diametrically? <laughs> I understand, maybe opposed. And we both laughed, uh, but he wouldn't let me out of, I had a two year contract and he wouldn't let me out of my contract. So I had to stay for the extra year and did my best to you know, try to come up with other ideas so that when I left, because I knew I was not going to renew. Well, Barry, once again, being, I think, a pretty smart character, and for whatever the reason, didn't want me to go. He said, let me let me make you uh, an offer. What do you want to do? I said, I want to produce movies. He said, well, you'll produce them here. I said, great. I, I, that's great. That's what I want. So a contract came in and I would say, if I'm kind, it was onerous. <laughs> if I'm not kind, it was impossible to sign. And uh, so I negotiated with the head of business affairs. And I I was I wrote about this in the book, Sonny, cause am kind of <laughs> found it funny myself that I said it. The head said, look, you, you, you gotta understand everybody at Paramount knows you march to a different drummer. And I said, but I'm not in your parade. Dick, I'm not in your parade and I never signed the contract and I and and I was very afraid to go out on my own. I had I was a man in my 30s. I had always had a paycheck. I had the advantage at that point of not having a wife or children, so I could at least not worry about a mortgage or college. but I still was afraid to go out on my own. And two great writers, Elaine May and herb Gardner, Herb wrote A Thousand Clowns and I'm not Rappaport, took me for dinner and they said, if you open up the store, we'll help you fill the shelves. I never forgot that. And uh, and they did, and they did. So I opened up Castle Hill, which was my company. It's what Schlossberg means in German. Actually Schloss, if you go to Germany, there's a lot of Schlosses around, Schloss is that. And Berg is generally a mountain, B-E-R-G. But I felt, you know, Paramount has the mountain. They're not too thrilled with me. Maybe I'll make it a hill, <laughs> and that's how Castle Hill came to pass. So, <laughs> um,
0: one last one last thing I wanted to to bring up here uh, at, toward the end of the book, you you talk about a project that you have been working on for a long time that hasn't um, hasn't hasn't been published yet hasn't hasn't quite been fulfilled. It's this interview. Uh, project. Why don't you tell folks uh, what you are working on? Maybe we can, you know, uh, get it's some interest. Someone, uh, yeah, get get <laughs> someone out there to be like, this is a thing we need oh, on, uh, you God, know, CNN God. or
1: uh, mean, you thank know, Netflix you that, that would be lovely. The show is called "Witnesses to the Twentieth Century," and I was able, and it still shocks me, to get one hundred and forty of the most extraordinary people who lived a long life during the twentieth century. Even though I met Miley Cyrus, she was not interviewed. It had to do, you had to be around a long time. And I I was able to get President George H.W. Bush, who, by the way, was the most gracious man you'd ever want to meet, and Sandra Day O'Connor and Clint Eastwood and Bishop Tutu. I mean, it's an incredible group of people talking about the major events of the 20th century, what they were and how they affected them and how, in many cases, they caused or were involved with the major events. So it's a wonderful idea. <laughs> I do say so myself myself. <laughs> uh, and uh, fortunately, my dear friend, Elaine May is writing it. And we're going to start we start with nine, it's a 14 hour series. We start at 1900 and go to 1999. I have seven secretaries of state, I have all of them that and, and pretty much that were alive at the time. Um, right up to, uh, you know, Alexander Haig and George Shultz and Kissinger and Madeleine Albright. Uh, it's, it's really quite interesting how they saw the 20th century through their eyes and, and where they came from. What's interesting to me, Sonny, when I do an interview is often where the person came from. I know why they're successful or I know they are successful because they're on my show. But where did they come from? What was their background? And what did they plan? Did they plan this? And here was one of the most interesting things for me. Nobody that I met that was really successful. Not one person admitted to saying I planned it. I bet not one. Now whether that's true or not, I don't know. But but I think it was. I do. I really do. And when uh, you get certain people saying things to you that you just can't believe, uh, Gore Vidal said. Remember, he said the. Uh, There wasn't one commander of World War II that was in favor of dropping the atomic bomb. What? What? I couldn't believe it. He said, look it up. He said, Eisenhower in, in in the Europe, Nimitz in the Pacific were against it. I mean, shocking to me, shocking to me. So there was a lot of things that came out. I mean, President Bush, George H.W. Bush, Sr. said that, you know, sometimes caught between the years, between Reagan and Clinton, I I sometimes find it hard to believe I was president. I thought, wow, what an interesting thing to say. Uh, He duplicated the, I went to his office in Houston. He duplicated the Oval Office. (laughs) I was looking for Martin Sheen. I mean, I couldn't believe That I was walking into the Oval Office, even though it was not the Oval Office. But he was so terrific. At the end of the interview, I said, President Bush, would you consider imitating Dana Carvey imitating you? He said, don't ask me. (laughs) I wouldn't do it. And he actually imitated it. A wonderful, wonderful man. And I was very grateful for the time he, he gave me. But so many of the people were so forthcoming and I think it was because I had no time limit some people stayed two three hours other people called and said listen I didn't cover some things can I come back and talk to you my god I said sure come on it was um, I would say in many ways the highlight of whatever I have as a career Uh, I would say that was that was it the talking to these incredible people and I always did it with no notes they were so shocked. But, you know, I did it for no notes for a lot of reasons. As you know, as an interviewer, if you keep looking down, the person knows you're reading. But if you're looking in their eyes, as you and I are doing now, you know, the brain is a muscle. It, it responds to that stimuli. And so it's a conversation. It's not an interview. And that's what I think, I hope I did. I, I think I did in, in watching yeah. it. So yeah. have I babbled on enough?
0: <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. I, I mean, are, do you do you guys do you and uh, Miss May have a, a location uh, a somewhere that that is, you know, has has professed interest? I mean, where where can we where where I, I, are you I hoping we can say, see this? I
1: have to say that it's uh, we have finished editing six of the 14. So we're over 40 percent completed. Um, and there has been a lot of resistance from. Uh, many of the places I'd like to sell um, because of committing fourteen hours, and I understand mm. that's a big commitment to make. So I think I'm going to go back in 2023, and then you'll hear it first, Sonny. You'll be the first person to know. <laughs> I'm offering seven and seven. Take the first okay, two seven. seasons. If you don't want it, you can drop it. So maybe that'll yeah. convince them. I don't know. It's it's very hard. The the, the country doesn't seem to be interested in history our country doesn't seem to care. And I lecture all over the country at colleges. And what I've found is, and this of course is a generalization, but most young people don't care about much before they were born. It doesn't interest them. And I grew up, that really did interest me. I was interested in what happened. Even in film, I wanted to know more about rudolph valentino or dw griffith you know i wanted i wanted to know more but our country has a problem with history period or else we couldn't make the same mistakes as we keep making over and over and over so i'm hoping that while i want to entertain on this show i'm going to educate i hope and people maybe from this show will learn something that they don't seem to know which is the history of our country yeah
0: uh, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's folks should know about your career, your book, uh, anything, uh, business of Hollywood or Broadway or whatever in general, uh, what what should I have asked that I, I failed to?
1: You didn't ask me to come back. <laughs> Can you ask me. To we'll come get you back? back. You'll get me.
0: I. Yeah, I could I, I could easily do another 45 minutes here. Uh, I mean, I again the book uh, the name of the book is "Try Not to Hold It Against Me: A Producer's Life" uh, by Julian Schlossberg. You gotta you gotta pick it up. You can forward by Elaine May. Uh, you gotta you you can pick it up at Amazon uh, and everywhere else books are sold. Uh, it is it is well worth your time if you want a um, again a a very interesting look over a very broad and diverse. A uh, cross section of the entertainment industry. It's 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 really it's really kind of a a journey through the uh, the the second half of the twentieth century of entertainment. So it's um, very very much worth your time if you uh, if you are looking for something to read.
1: Well, I thank you for that, and I wish we had talked about Othello and Orson Welles, but maybe <laughs> one other time.
0: We could do that. We'll do that on a, on another show. We can we'll get All you right. back on and talk about that. Thank you. Uh, my name. Thank you for being on the show, Mr. Schlossberg. Really appreciate it. Um, My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, uh, and I'll be back next week with another episode. We'll see you guys
1: then.